0: my brothers and sisters and friends we welcome you and invite you to hear the word of god from john chapter 5 today's text speaks to us about a collision and this collision is going to occur for every person you're going to collide with god whether that collision has happened already or not every person is on a appointed engagement with the Most High. And in that moment, I wonder if there'll be a fair meeting between you and God. Between your soul and God. Will there be a fair meeting? The meeting is coming, and in today's text, those who met with God met with Him in opposition. But the real sadness of that is that Any opposition against God is a fight against omnipotence, against all power. And today's text shows us what happens when finite creatures fight the omnipotent. The goal of today's sermon, the application, I'll just give it to you right now at the beginning, it's that you and I will honor the Lord Jesus just as we honor God, because if we fight against him, we are fighting against God, or as Jesus says, we're fighting against the one who is one with God, we're fighting against the one who gives life to the dead, and we're fighting against the one who is going to be the final judge of all men. Well, in order to get the context of our sermon text in our minds, I want to read a long passage. I think it'll help us It's John chapter 5, we're going to focus on verses 16 through 30, but I want to read verses 1 through 30, and because it's such a long passage, I've asked that the text be projected on the screen behind me, so that you can follow along in the translation that I'm reading from, which is the New American Standard. Feel free to use your Bibles or to look up on the screen, but especially put your listening ears on and hear the word of the living God. John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is in Hebrew called Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Verse 5, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, And knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered him, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now comes our focus for today. Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason... Therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner." For the Father, the Son, and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go right to the God who gave it to us and ask Him to bless our consideration of it. Father, our prayer stated simply, but so complex and profound, no way we could accomplish it on our own. So we bring this simple statement, but this deep, desperate cry to You. Would You dispatch the Holy Spirit to illumine this passage and show to us the true Jesus so that we may have life in his name. We ask this through Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, that Jesus may be honored as God. In his name we pray, amen. Our focus, as I mentioned, is verses 16 through 30, but scholars, for obvious reason, uh, tend to include the portion from last week's, uh, two weeks ago's passage with this week's passage. So I read the entire account to give you the context. So we're told in verse 16, where we'll pick up our focus today, that the Jews were persecuting Jesus and they were doing so because of his Sabbath day ministry. And in verse 18, it gets more intense. You can see that they're not only persecuting, but it's specified that they are seeking to kill him. So this passage shows us, as I said at the beginning, these people are making war with Jesus. They are opposed to him. But as the passage will show us in really one of the most concentrated ways in the entire Bible in 12 verses, I'll show you which 12 those are momentarily, in 12 verses you get one of the most dense Christological treatises in the whole Bible. The one with whom they are making war. They are persecuting him, verse 16. They are seeking to kill him, verse 18. They are fighting against Jesus. But in fighting against him, they are fighting against the one who is one with the Father, the giver of life, and the judge of all. They are fighting the omnipotent God. In Jesus' response, now let's be clear about who he's responding to, who it is that's fighting against him. Verse 10 15, 16, and 18 tell us who the they are. It's the Jews. In his response to them, Jesus unfurls one of the deepest gold mines of Trinitarian theology in the entire Bible. Verse 17 and verse 19 use the word in English, answer. In his answer... That word that's used for answer tells us that Jesus is giving a formal defense to the charges that are being brought against him, alleging that it was unlawful for him to do any work on the Sabbath day as a mere mortal would be restricted from doing so the Jews supposed. In his response, Jesus emphasizes three magnificent bedrock truths, and I want you to go home with these truths today as the foundation of your life. The bedrock truths that Jesus lays down in his answer to the inference and accusation that he ought not work on the Sabbath is he is one with God, he is the one who bestows life, and he is the judge of all in some. In some he is God. So in that order, verses 16 to 18 first, Jesus' relationship to the Father verse 16 to 18. So in his commentary on this portion, R.C. Sproul titles the whole section, verses 16 through 30, Jesus, Son of the Father. That's Sproul's way of saying, that's the main point. So I'm saying in number one, Jesus' relationship to the Father. Leon Morris similarly wrote in his commentary, the theme of the whole passage is the unity of the Father and the Son. Jesus' relationship to to the Father. He's one with God. So while the Jews were accustomed in their synagogue worship to referring to God as our Father, as our Lord has taught us to pray, our Father, Jesus in verse 17 lays an accent mark, an emphasis on his unique relationship to the Father. He doesn't say our Father in verse 17. What does he say? He says, my Father is working. Verse 17, until now, and I myself am working. But if you look at the beginning of verse 17, you'll see the word answered. But he answered them. I've already alluded to this, but that's a word that's used commonly in first century literature for legal proceedings. It's not the word that the Bible in the Gospels frequently uses to introduce Jesus' teachings, his parables, in phrases such as, Jesus said... It's not the same word. This is a legal defense for the inferred accusations from the Jews toward him that he has no right to work on the Sabbath. Again, verse 17, Jesus' answer stresses his personal relationship with God. My Father. So Jesus' relationship to the Father is our first consideration. Allow your eyes just to skim verses 19 to 22 as I draw attention to several phrases in that portion. And look at how strongly Jesus lays emphasis on the specialness, the uniqueness of his relationship with the Father that the Jews presumed to know and follow. You can see there in verse 19, Jesus answers, and two times toward the end of that verse, He does nothing except what he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does. Verse 20, the Father loves the Son. Again, in the middle of verse 20, the Father will show the Son greater works than these. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone. Verse 23, two times, so that all will honor the Son as they honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Friend, let's let's be clear. I know it sounds very preachy and the kind of themes that we're supposed to talk about in Christian churches on Sunday mornings. And this passage lays before us a truth that if we don't just listen to it religiously but we listen to it honestly, if we don't just read the Word but we allow the Word to examine us, to hold a mirror up in front of us the truth of Jesus' relationship to the Father as He explains it, as He argues and answers it, will either provoke provoke one of of two responses from you. So if you don't feel the response that I'm about to tell you you must have, then you're either not listening or don't care. Jesus' relationship to the Father as He describes it will either provoke you to hate Him and want to destroy him, or it will awaken love to him, and make you want to honor him. If you're indifferent, you're either not listening, or you don't care. There's no middle ground with Jesus, hold that thought in your mind, because we're going to pick it up at the end. There's no middle ground with Jesus. This passage makes it plain, that Jesus was experiencing, verse 16, persecution. There's a, implication in the tense of the words in verse 16 that it wasn't just the healing of the 38 year lame man on the sabbath for which jesus was persecuted but that it was his custom to do such things on the sabbath and they were persecuting him because of his sabbath ministry continually and that persecution we're told in verse 16 is because he was doing these things things like these on the Sabbath. But the hostility, as I pointed out in verse 18, gets much more intensified. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Well, anytime you see a phrase like that, for this reason, we should ask the what question. For what reason? Why did persecution for doing these things on the Sabbath transition into verse 18, seeking all the more to kill him? Well, the reason's given to us. It's in verse 17 and it may not sound very shocking to you but if it doesn't make you hate or love you're either not listening or you don't care. Because when they heard they had no other option than to respond. He answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working for this reason. Therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Our first consideration, Jesus' answer, his refutation, his response, his legal counter to the accusations brought against him for working on the Sabbath is, my Father is working, so I'm working. Jesus focused on his relationship with the Father and therefore his engagement in the Father's work There are so many who contend with Christian doctrine simply because they've never read their Bible. People say accusations against Christianity, try to suggest that Christianity is constantly um, contradicting itself or that we assert things as the foundation of our faith that the Bible never says. One of the most common things that people bring up as a charge against Christian doctrine is that we assert that Jesus is God, and we do, But the Bible never tells us that Jesus made such a claim. Well, I will concede. There's not one verse anywhere in the Bible that says, Jesus is God. And I'm saying that's the foundation of the Christian faith. But what is unmistakably clear from Scripture are things like verse 18 that are replete in the New Testament. That is that the Bible makes plain that everyone who heard Jesus and listened to his teaching understood that he believed that he was God's equal. That is the reason they wanted to kill him. So when you hear this sentence, my father's working until now, so I'm working. Do you hear? He is saying he is equal with God. How do you get that connection out of that verse? Let me try to summarize how that connection happens. Paying attention to the point that Jesus makes in verse 17 provokes the murderous intention toward the Son of God in the hearts of the Jews. Do you see the precious seamlessness here in the relationships of the Father and the Son? displayed in their work in the world, and I'm going to use two big theological categories, so you've got to put on your thinking cap, go with me for just a moment, it'll be well worth the energy. There's a focus in this passage on Jesus' being and on his activity, his person and his work. In his person, his being, theologians refer to Jesus' relationship among the triune god father son and spirit spirit as a relationship of being and as a relationship of role function activity the being category of trinitarian doctrine is referred to as the ontological trinity that is in his being he is god one true god in 3 and 3 in 1 without 3 deities, one God. The persons of the triune God share one nature and one eternally glorious being. One God. That's the ontological trinity. But in his role, in his function, in his assignment, in his activity, though Jesus is perfectly unified in being with the Father, the execution of his assignment from the Father as the Son theologians refer to as the economic trinity. So the ontological trinity refers to his being, the economic trinity refers to his role, meaning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although perfectly one ontologically, in their being as God are distinct in their functions. For example, you all know this already, but theologians help us kind of think about it in the detail. In their roles, Father, Son, and Spirit... The Father sins the Son, not the other way around. The Son dies on the cross for our sins, not the Spirit. The Spirit indwells believers and exalts the person and saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, without which no one will go to heaven. This is to refer to the economic Trinity. So, verse 17. Thank you for going into the swimming pool with me. Verse 17 is referring to the Son's proper engagement in the Father's work, and everybody who heard Him say it said, He's making Himself equal with God. How do you get that out of that verse? Answer, you must have had to have thought previously about whether or not God does any work on the Sabbath. Is God a lawbreaker? And the conundrum that the first century Jews and the rabbis thought about, we even know their names and have their writings from first century preservation. We know that the first century rabbis pondered the question, if God stops working on the Sabbath, how does the universe not disintegrate? And as they pondered that question, they concluded rightly, God does not Cease his activity, though he is always, Genesis 2, in Sabbath rest. So he rests and works, therefore the universe doesn't disintegrate. But he's not a lawbreaker, and this is the way that they would describe it. And I agree with them, I think they got it right. The rabbis would say, God never leaves his domain. Because the entire universe is his address he doesn't leave his house. Therefore, he doesn't go over there to do such and such inside his domicile, his domain, his abode. He's free to do whatever he wants just like anybody else under the law would be. And second, not only does he inhabit eternity and therefore never leave his domain, he is also transcendent, therefore he never lifts anything above his own head. Because God is infinite in his expanse and God is transcendent in his nature, he therefore never breaks the Sabbath. Now, listen to verse 17. My Father is working until now, and so am I. Jesus is saying, though I'm standing in front of you in flesh and blood, and though you think you know who I am and where I came from, I'm telling you that I inhabit eternity and possess transcendence, and therefore I'm not a lawbreaker to work on the Sabbath. He's making himself equal with God. You got it. Jesus, therefore was sought after, and they wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. So notice, Jesus does not ground his answer, legal defense, verse 17, in the good that he had done to an invalid for 38 years. How pagan do you gotta be For a guy to want to get down to the water first so that he might get healed in his superstitious religiosity instead of the next guy. But people keep jumping in front of him in line for 38 years. They didn't care about that. They weren't rejoicing that he was healed after that long plight. How pagan do you have to be to not care about that. But notice Jesus doesn't ground his legal defense in, look, I had compassion on somebody and you guys are upset about it. Not where he grounds it. He grounds his defense in, I'm God. He doesn't even really refer to the accusation brought that he told a man to pick up his pallet and walk. Actually, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath, the man did. And they would carry their pallet, by the way, like this, above their head. Jesus didn't even do that. All he did was talk. He told him, get up. The man got up. He broke the Sabbath, not Jesus. So he doesn't ground his defense there. He grounds it in his essential nature. Number two, not only Jesus' relationship to the Father, and we'll tiptoe back into that in the conclusion, but Jesus points to two realities that God has assigned to him as God the Son, demonstrating his deity. The first is he's the giver of life. The second is he's the judge of all men. So this is our second point. Jesus is not only one with the Father, number one, he's also the giver of life. This is verses 19 to 23. This begins that 12 verse portion that I was referring to earlier, that is one of the most dense and delightful unfoldings of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Those to whom Jesus is speaking in this passage were very, very, very well acquainted with the Old Testament. We're told four times that these are the Jews. We have every reason to believe that it's the leaders of them, the Pharisaical, rabbinical Jews. Those people to whom Jesus was speaking would have been very familiar with the teachings of passages like Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse twenty: "The Lord is our life," or Psalm twenty-seven, one: "The Lord is the stronghold of my life," or Psalm forty-two, eight: "He is the God of my life." So when Jesus speaks of himself as the giver of life, they all understood that he's continuing to lay out his defense that he believes he's God. The Jews knew that God is the one who alone breathed life into our first parents in Genesis 2-7. And they knew, Psalm 36-9, that God alone is the fountain of life. So here in John 5, when the Lord Jesus begins to assert things like verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Now you can't read that outside the context of the rest of the Gospel of John. It's not a verse just to cherry pick. In chapter 1, we know that Jesus, the Word, the Logos Eternal, has existed with God from forever. So verse 26 cannot mean that when the Father gave the Son life, He came into being. We're talking about essential nature. We're talking about a theological doctrine called aseity. That God is and he is as he has always and will ever be. Everyone within earshot of Jesus in verse 26 would have understood that Jesus means for his hearers to understand that he is equa- equating himself with God, the giver of life. Verses 19 to 22 are structured around four, four statements. F-O-U-R, four. F-O-R, therefore statements verses 19 to 22 are structured around those four fours verse 19 B the son is perfectly compatible with the father not in competition against him do you see it it's impossible for the son to take a position over or against the father as another God for verse 19 All that the Son does is consistent with and coextensive with all the Father does. Jesus isn't in competition with the Father. The Father's not in competition with the Son. They are harmoniously together in their assigned economic functions in the Trinity. That's the first four. The second four is in verse 20. The point is that the Father's love for the Son is the reason That the Son can do all that the Father does. This is such a precious verse. Has it lit your heart on fire like the two men on the road to Emmaus as Jesus speaks it to you, not Jordan? Oh, what a precious truth. Do you see it in verse 20? For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. Jesus, under the tutelage of his earthly father Joseph, learned a trade called, don't say it out loud, but you know it, carpentry. The Lord Jesus, a young man in Nazareth, would go daily with his dad Joseph to the carpentry shop and they would make all sorts of stuff and they would take the products to the people that ordered them and they would pump out the, the material. But day after day after day, Jesus' apprenticeship, was learned not only with books, and he may have studied some of those, not only with math problems and rulers, not only with jigsaws and power saws and drills and presses, it was learned mainly by watching his dad. And in Jesus' generation, most people did what their fathers did if they were sons. Jesus was a carpenter and he was a carpenter par excellence. He was even referred to as the carpenter of Nazareth. Probably the best in the business because he watched his dad so closely and his dad delighted to show him how to do the work. Do you see verse 20 that the Lord Jesus' eyes were not only on Joseph but they were especially on his heavenly father. And in a In an undiluted way, with a clear glass, no filter, no sin nature to contaminate the shield between him and the Father. Perfect vision, seeing in the Father his heart perfectly. Jesus set his eyes on the Father and the Father delights to show him everything that he's doing so that the Son also can do the work. It reminds us as was prayed in the prayer meeting by one of our sisters just a few moments ago John 15:10 If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments Jesus said and I abide in his love Jesus knew that he was loved by the father you know what that meant for him Among many other glorious things it mean he didn't need this from you He doesn't need your approval He doesn't need your affirmation. He's already approved by the most significant person in the universe. He's free from the tyranny of your approval. He doesn't need you to give him anything because the Father loves him and he knew it. At his baptism, the Father shouts from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Friends, that's two statements, not one. That's a statement of acceptance And that's a statement of approval. You are accepted. You are mine. You are my son. I accept you and approval in you. I am well pleased because he knew he had the Father's love. Because he knew he had the Father's acceptance and approval. He was the freest man in the universe. And when these Jews come to tell him why he can't do this and he can't do that and he's doing it all wrong. He puts them on trial. They're coming to accuse Him, but this legal defense didn't turn out the way that they hoped. The reason that Jesus can show us everything the Father does, or as John puts it earlier in chapter 1, the reason Jesus, chapter 1, verse 18, can reveal God to us is first and foremost because Christ knows that He is loved of the Father. Let me put it to you another way. The exegeting of God to us in Christ. That means Jesus is the only person who can truly show you God. I'll say it again. You don't know God if you don't know Jesus. The exegeting of God to us in Christ depends first not on the Son's love to us but on the Father's love to the Son. Because the Father loves the Son, the Father shows Him everything that He's doing. And second, vice versa, because the Son loves the Father, He loves therefore to show others how great the Father is. And the Son's love to the Father was shown back to Him, in His obedience, even to the point of death, Death on the cross. Did you know that you and I are... are, 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 Let me spit this out because it's too good to stumble over. (laughs) Did you know that you and I, in our salvation, are secondary beneficiaries of God's love for Himself? Did you know that your salvation is not mainly for you? That God saved you mainly for Himself? Himself to show how great and glorious He is. Therefore, we're secondary beneficiaries, and I get it from all kinds of places in the Bible. Let me give you one. James chapter 4, verse 5 says that when God puts the Holy Spirit in you, He jealously desires the Spirit He's put within you. God puts God in you when you get united to Christ by faith in His death and resurrection so that God's Spirit can exalt God's Son to the glory of the Father through you. It's like he puts you in the way of glorifying himself, which is what he's been doing for all, from all eternity. The Father loves the Son, and therefore he shows him everything he's doing, and Jesus shows to us the one true God. But do you see verse 20? That you may be amazed, for the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing, and The Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. That you will marvel. So that you'll be amazed. This does not mean, D.A. Carson wrote, that Jesus derives some sort of cheap thrill at people's astonishment. Jesus' goal is not to get you to clap for him. Carson goes on. Therefore, me read the whole quote this does not mean that jesus derives some sort of cheap thrill at people's astonishment and therefore shapes his mission to generate more of it like a second-class illusionist who lives for the next round of applause it's not that kind of marvel the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing one commentator said the achievement of the divine self-disclosure in jesus climaxed at the cross was supremely the outflow of the reciprocal love between the Father and the Son within the Godhead. Because God loves God supremely, God's love was shown to you in the most supreme way possible. In eternity past, the Father said to the Son, it will please me to make you a guilt offering if you'll willingly render yourself. And in Isaiah 53.10, we're 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 told that the Son responds to the Father in eternity past saying, if it will glorify you to save those rebels by crushing me, then by all means crush me because I don't want anything more than for you to get all the glory. The third four, F-O-R, in this passage is in verse 21. And we're told by it that the the, the truth that's shown in verses 19 and 20 that we've been considering, the Father loves the Son, shows Him everything He's doing, is exemplified in Jesus' perfect self-disclosure of the Father to us in one specific way especially, raising the dead. So keep in mind that there's 12 straight verses, it carries beyond that, of Jesus' speech. It's unbroken here by John. The Jews don't say anything else to him. Jesus does all the talking. But notice now that in verse 21, Jesus lays emphasis on his ability to, to raise the dead these Jews would have known 2 Kings 5 7 they would have known Deuteronomy 28 12 they would have known Genesis 30 22 and a host of other Old Testament texts that say only God can raise the dead so again Jesus is clearly asserting his divinity his deity the Greek construction of verse 21 works this way for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whomever He wills, whomever He pleases. Just as He had healed one man by that pool of Bethesda in verse 6, Jesus so also spiritually chooses to give life to whomever He so pleases. That's what He meant in chapter 15 to His disciples of this same Gospel. You didn't choose Me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit And here, this resurrection to which Jesus is referring is not only spiritual resurrection in this lifetime from spiritual death and the enemy of God in a condition into which we're all born Not only spiritual resurrection where we're made alive, we're converted, we're brought to Christ by faith, we see Jesus for who he is, we believe the gospel, that he died for us, that he rose again to prove that he's the only redeemer, that God will accept to make us righteous in his sight forever. Not only that spiritual resurrection, but Jesus is also referring to that end time, eschatological last day when every person who's ever lived will actually be raised and stand before him in judgment. Before we get to that point, verse 22 gives us the fourth four. The father, though he does raise the dead, though he does give life, there's that beautiful parallel that the son also does the raising and the giving of life. The father does not judge. Notice this in verse 22. He doesn't judge for he has given all judgment to the son. This is amazing because in well-trodden passages that the Jews to this day will still quote, you go to their synagogues and you will listen to rabbis to this day quote Genesis 18.25 Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will. And the judge of all the earth has been pleased to give all judgment to the Son. Do you know what that means in verse 22? Do you you know the implications of that? I I say that as soberly, seriously, and winsomely as I know how. Do you know the implication of verse 22? It means that not one sin will ever eventually go unpunished. Either your sin or sins of others against you or sins that others have committed that have no effect on you. Every single sin will be finally punished either in you or those who've sinned or in Christ. Judgment will be perfectly rendered by the Son. Therefore, believers don't have to take vengeance. We don't need to get retribution in this lifetime. I have bad news for you the world's going to get worse. That's my understanding of the eschatology of the Bible. Not getting better. Go ask our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who thought that Armageddon was coming 1,500 years ago. We don't need to take vengeance because one day we know that the Jesus in whom we were at rest will perfectly judge the world. And all that's breathtaking and should make your heart skip a beat type of material, but it's aiming at a purpose statement. Why are the four fours in this passage? the Father's love for the Son, the fact that He raises and gives life, the fact that He's the judge of all. Why why are these realities true of the Son? The answer is given. The goal, the aim, the motivation of God's heart, the intention of the Father in ordering the economic functions of the Trinity in this way is that everyone will honor His Son. Do you see that the Father gave all judgment to the Son so that the Son will be honored even as the Father is honored? Guess who the Jews who were talking to Jesus, who knew their Bibles really, really well, did not know? God. They never honored God. Not one day of their Bible study ever brought pleasure to the heart of God. Not one synagogue attendance. Not one hearing of the Old Covenant read. Not one feast. Not one fasting. Not one act of obedience. Nothing they ever did ever honored God because they did not honor His Son. Again, D.A. Carson is so helpful. Let me give you three little snippets. The Jews were right in detecting that Jesus was making himself equal with God, verse 17 and 18. But this does not diminish God. Indeed, the glorification of the Son is precisely what glorifies the Father. Guess why we say our vision statement around here at Grace Church is to glorify God by doing something. We exist to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ. The Father's not jealous if you worship the Son. He's actually incensed if you don't. The way He's glorified, as Philippians 2 says, is He died on the cross and therefore God raised Him from the dead because He was obedient all the way to the cross death and God gave Him the name above every name and exalted Him to the highest place so that everybody would say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do you glorify God the Father? By acknowledging and embracing that Jesus Christ is kurios. He is God. He is Lord. D.A. Carson again. Because of the unique relation between the Father and the Son, the God who declares, this is Old Testament, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another, is not compromised or diminished when divine honors crown the head of His Son. We glorify God by a particular avenue, activity, means, treasuring His Son. Verse 23, honoring His Son. If you don't follow Jesus, you don't honor God. If you don't esteem and glorify and prize and treasure and love the lord jesus if you don't trust him by faith you do not honor god you don't have a relationship with the higher power or the god out there if you don't honor jesus carson concludes jesus's conclusion is that he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him in a theistic universe such a statement belongs to one who is himself to be addressed as god or he is guilty of stark insanity The one who utters such things, if you don't honor me, you will never honor God. The one who utters such things is to be dismissed with pity or scorn or to be worshipped as Lord. That's why I said earlier, what Jesus says here, you either hate him or you honor him. And if it doesn't provoke one of those responses in you, you're either not listening or you don't care. Carson's final statement. Either John is supremely deluded and must be dismissed as a fool or his witness is true and is to be, Jesus is to be ascribed the honors due to God alone. There is no middle ground. How are you going to glorify God? Grace Church exists to say to you that we believe the message of the whole Bible is this. The way you glorify Him is first and foremost principially valuing His Son, treasuring His Son, fixing your eyes on His Son, beholding the glory of His Son, seeing in the face of Jesus the glory of the one true God and being transformed into His likeness. And if you will focus on being who God calls you to be, enamored with His Son, conformed to the image of His Son, I promise you, He'll give you plenty to do. You don't glorify God first by what you do, but by who he is and what he's done for you. Final portion of the passage, verses 24 to 30. Jesus is the judge of all. We know he's one with the Father. That's been laid out clearly, even though if I haven't been able to express it clearly. We know he's the giver of life, but finally we're told he's the judge of all. See, at the beginning of our passage, the Jews were seeking to judge Jesus, weren't they? You're a lawbreaker. You're breaking the Sabbath. In verse 17, we're told Jesus, in verse 19, Jesus boldly answers their accusations. He puts them on trial. He gives his legal defense for why it's justified for him to work on the Sabbath. He inhabits the universe. He's the transcendent God. What's happening here? is John the writer is stacking up witnesses to the deity of Jesus. Have you ever heard this verse? Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. That verse is actually in the context of church discipline. Matthew 18. We're told... That in that disciplined passage, the instruction of the Lord Jesus to local churches that have among their members the sin of Achan, going unchecked, unrepentant, a long disobedience in the same direction, that we are to approach them individually, lovingly, brokenhearted, prayerfully, call them to repent. If they won't listen, we're to tell that, uh, to, to approach them with, with two or three witnesses, to whom every fact is confirmed. If they still won't repent, we're to then tell it to the whole church. And if they still won't listen to the whole church, they're to be treated like an unbeliever. We can't say with any sense of biblical confidence that you're a Christ follower. If you're regenerate, it's a mystery to us because your life does not appear to be consistent with what the Bible says is true of Christians. That is, we're not sinless, but we are repenting sinners. But the second step, did you get it? Every fact is to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament, God would not allow among Israel a civil judicial declaration to be hung over a person's head in guilt unless the facts were confirmed by two or three witnesses. You can't just judge people in the marketplace of your own suspicion and hold them guilty. There's got to be witnesses, evidence, verifiable. Now look at what God's doing. He does not have two or three witnesses to the deity of Christ. John has seven signs. John has seven I am statements. And starting right after our passage, I don't know if your Bible has headings in it for the rest of chapter 5, there are five listed here but he's already given us two there are seven witnesses to the deity of Jesus if you go into a courtroom with God and he's laid out for you seven indisputable evidences confirming that Jesus is God and you disagree That gavel strike is not going to go well with you. He's the judge of all. You see, the Old Testament required that before a person could be condemned in court for a crime, there must be two or three witnesses, but in John's Gospel, God continues to stack up witnesses to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while the Jews were seeking to put Jesus on trial, Jesus turns the tables and puts them and all of us on trial. In this concluding portion, verses 23-30, to the Lord Jesus puts not only the Jews, but the whole world on trial. He says very clearly that He is going to judge everybody. In His legal defense, the Lord Jesus calls everyone to the witness stand. But Jesus is not at the lawyer's desk He's not at the podium making his uh, interrogation of of the person on the witness stand. He's not at the lawyer desk. He's not at the podium. He's not in the jury box. He's on the judge's bench. And he's the one who's going to decide the case. Notice that this judge does what God alone can do. Do you know when a judge speaks finally and strikes the gavel, the decision is final? Verse 24, Jesus just speaks and people get life. That's what God does. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. judgment. Verse 25 and 26, he is already making people eternally alive. You don't get eternal life after you die. You get it now. yes, it's going to be you know, 2.0 in, in, in a far more glorious way than we can imagine, after this life but death is not death we're simply transitioning to life forevermore either in eternal bliss with god or in eternal torment under his judgment and in verse 25 and 26 he is giving people life right now he has life in himself eternally by nature just as the father but he gives life verse 26 to those who have heard his word, pardon me, verse 25. Verse 27, he is the self-identified son of man. That's a designation from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, where in this vision that God gives to Daniel, they're seated on God's eternal throne, one like the Son of Man. And here in verse 27, Jesus is saying, I'm that eschatological, that in time, enthroned King of glory. I have all authority to execute judgment because I'm the Son of Man. In verse 28 and 29, he says in no uncertain terms that he's the one that's going to judge every person. Don't be surprised. Don't marvel. Don't be astonished at this. Here's a day on the horizon that would blow your mind. Look, we don't buy, as Christians, we don't buy cemetery plots. We buy resurrection plots. We go get little plots of ground from which we're going to rise. Don't marvel at this. Jesus says, there's a day coming. Every tomb's going to open. whatever form of burial has been happening, whatever form of after death situation has happened to a person, they're going to come back together instantaneously and stand before the judge of the universe, and he is that judge. If you've done the good, resurrection of life. you've done the evil, verse 29, resurrection of judgment. And the good, he tells us in the very next chapter, this is the work of God. Here's the good work. Believe in the one whom God has sent. Acts 17 tells us that there's a day that God's already fixed. It's already set. It's not going to move. He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now look where this passage ends. It started this way in verse 19 and I didn't accent it. Because I wanted to leave it in your mind and heart in verse 30. Do you see the Son's voluntary subordination to the Father? His willing, self-humbling to the will of the Father? He's the judge of the universe. He gives life to the dead. He's one with the Father. And in verse 19, He can do nothing on His own initiative. In verse 30, He can do nothing on His own initiative. But notice... That all that He does in verse 30, He does at the initiative of the Father. We've already seen that He sees the Father. He watches Him. Now He's listening to the Father in verse 30. As I hear from Him, I render judgment. And I know that my judgment is just because I'm not seeking my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The seamless unity of the Trinity, both in their ontology, being in their economy, their work, Jesus carries out not his own will, but the will of the Father. This Jesus lived a life of total dependence on the Father. We're told in John's Gospel, chapter 7, and elsewhere, he never spoke a word unless the Father gave him the words to say. Here in chapter 5, we're told he never does an action unless it's something the Father shows him or tells him to do. Do you see how dependent The Lord Jesus was on the Father. He's God. How can He say, I do nothing on my own initiative? He created the universe. Did you read chapter 1? He sustains it by His power. He's the God that you have been made by and made for. And He says, I can't do one thing on my own. How can He say that? what he's saying to these Jews is that he is actually living the life that we were all supposed to live. The life of God-dependent, God-glorifying aim, doing everything not for ourselves, but for his glory. He's saying he's that man. And the whole reason he lived that life we were supposed to live and eventually died that death that we were supposed to die is verse 23a i told you at the beginning that's the application that all will honor the son just as they honor the father and if you won't treasure the son if you won't cherish him and i don't know how to say it more plainly and clearly but i'm not going to labor all the negatives i could say i'm just going to give you the positives if you won't worship Him and prize Him and delight in Him and trust Him and faith Him and yield your whole being to Him, if you won't give yourself to Him and all your resources to Him, your mental capacity, your physical energy, all of your material possessions, everything about everything about you, you're also going to be raised just like everybody else. But you'll be raised to a judgment It will not be a fair meeting between you and God. But if you would honor Him, that is, trust Him, faith Him, rest on Him, rely on Him, depend on Him to make you right with God and to fill you with the power to live the life that God intends for you, to glorify God, to ever increasingly conform you in this lifetime until you see Him face to face in glory into the image of Christ. If you will honor the Son, not be a religious person, not follow a higher power, no mystical religious jargon, not dip yourself in a pool of water hoping that that will heal you. If you'll honor Jesus, that's biblical Christianity. He showed the Father's love for Him in perfectly revealing God to us. And He showed His love to the Father in going all the way to the cross to make us acceptable to God. His humble obedience, never doing one thing on His own initiative, always glorifying God even to His final breath. And the Father showed the universe that He accepted the sacrifice of His Son and the obedient life of His Son by raising Him from the dead. Oh, put your hope in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have told us that the people who heard Jesus teach said He was making Himself equal with God. And thank You that You have told us that the reason the Lord Jesus has been given the assignment He's been given from eternity, from the triune God, is so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here who already know the Lord Jesus. Those of us who, especially, whose esteem and admiration for Christ has been diminished by focus on lesser things. I ask that you would provoke in us by your Spirit a fresh honor to your Son. And for those who have never honored Him, never bowed the knee to Him in faith and never surrendered their life to Him, never embraced His atoning death and His victorious resurrection, oh, how I pray that You would cause people to honor Him by yielding everything to Him in faith. We do praise God from whom all blessings flow. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As we close in this doxology, we ask that you would make it the prayer of our heart's worship. In Jesus' name.